those who don't know me, my name is Paul Martin. I've uh, been an elder here at River Hills and preached a few times, and I'm going to bring God's word to us here today. Uh, so, in this Bible passage, Saul's the bad guy and does bad things. David's the good guy and he does good things. Don't be like Saul, be like David. There you go. So, obviously, that's not all I'm going to say today, right? I think all of us realize that there, there has to be more to this passage, two whole chapters, 18 and 19 of 1 Samuel. But, but why? Why is there more? Why shouldn't we view this passage like we do one of Aesop's fables or one of Grimm's fairy tales, stories with a moral that help us live wisely? Uh, well, we can't do that because this passage in 1 Samuel is not a fairy tale. It's not the equivalent of Red Riding Hood's uh, see what happens when you stop to talk to wolves in the woods. It's it's none of the stories in this history of 1 Samuel that we're reading. None of them, none of them are that. Uh, instead, this is God's word to us. Uh, like the rest of the Bible, it's the story of how God has been working through history, his purposes, his character, and his revelation of himself to his people. The words of the Bible, the words of this passage, have been preserved through thousands of years for a purpose. You look at passages in 2 Timothy, 2 Peter, Hebrews, the Gospel of John, and you will see that the Bible, all of it, is useful to us, breathed out by God himself, will actively judge our hearts and our attitudes and will testify to, bear witness, show us Jesus himself. Does that seem like a lot for a story? On its surface, it looks kind of like a somewhat petty local tribal conflict between two leaders in Israel. David and Saul. What I hope to show you today, uh, by comparing and contrasting these two kings, how God is speaking to us to show us ourselves and show us Jesus and change our hearts to be more in conformity to who Jesus is and how we can be more like him in the ways that we live. Uh, pray with me before we, we dive in. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word to us that you have worked to preserve for yourself a people throughout history and that you have done the work. Lord, you are a good and a gracious God. and You have given us all that we need to live in Christ. So Lord, we pray that we would uh, accept what you have given us in your word with grateful hearts and we would pay attention closely to these words that you are sending to us, that you would make your spirit effective in our lives causing us to love Jesus as he's shown here. It's in his name that we pray, amen. So I really hope you're able to take the time this week to read and think about the scripture for today, 1 Samuel 18 through 19. Um, it is so helpful to spend the time reading and thinking about a sermon text before it's preached, right? I think you end up getting so much more out of it. Um, but in case you haven't, let me give you an overview of, the, of what's all in 18 through 19. Um, David just finished defeating Goliath, the giant Philistine warrior. Sean preached to us on that text last week. Uh, David and Jonathan, the current king's son, they've become fast friends and pledged their, their love for each other. Uh, Saul gets jealous of David because the people really like David's success in battle, and he gets jealous and angry. Uh, Saul attempts to kill David with a spear uh, when a harmful spirit from God rushes upon him. He does this twice. Saul's fear of David grows even as the people of Israel love David more and more. Um, Saul tries to get the Philistines to kill David later in the text here uh, by setting him a task for his daughter's hand in marriage. It's kind of gruesome. That fails. doesn't work. Um, Saul 
then works covertly to try to end David's life. You know, tells his servants, hey, be really good at that guy, offed it. And Jonathan works to preserve David's life by telling Saul, David doesn't deserve death. Um, and David succeeds in battle more and more. And then Saul tries to spear him again. Uh, Saul finally, he sends his men to kill David in his home. And Saul's daughter, Michal, uh, David's wife, works to save his life. And finally, the last part of the text in 19, David flees to where Samuel is. And Saul sends multiple groups of servants to try to kill him. All of them fail because the Spirit of God comes upon them and they end up prophesying. Uh, and this happens until Saul comes himself to do the job. But the same thing happens to him. He's made to prophesy naked and humiliated. So that's the whole two chapters in a nutshell. But I encourage you to keep that text open and see these things in your Bibles as I talk about them today. So, so think about what's all gone before in 1 Samuel here. On the one hand, you got Saul and all his history, the king that Israel asked for, demanded, whose name you know, sounds like, asked for, uh, the king who rules as a result of the Israelites rejecting God as their king and asking for a king to go out before them. Uh, Samuel warned them that Saul would be a king to whom they shall be his slaves. He's tall and he's great and in many ways powerful, but also afraid, tormented, and disobedient. On the other hand, there's David, the man after God's own heart, the humble shepherd whose fierceness shows itself not in the protection of his own honor and reputation, but in his protection of those dependent on him and in the defense of the honor of the name of the Lord of Israel. The not yet king, who has done nothing to demand his rightful throne for himself, but instead dedicated himself to the, current, the service of the current king and to God's people. Of the not yet king, who serves and ministers to a man that God has revealed he's going to someday replace. Uh, these two kings could not be more different. Uh, but there's a third king here that we have to we can't neglect to think about, and that's God the king. Uh, you see, the passage is about a conflict and a, and a tension between two earthly kings, but more than that, this passage is about how God the king is ruling over his people for their good, judging and condemning rebellious kings and providing loving and good kings to rule over them for their good under him. So that's the overarching theme of the passage. And we see that played out as Saul comes face to face, toe to toe with the new king. Uh, despite Israel's sinful rejection of God as their king in favor of King Saul, God has mercifully decided to provide them with a better way, a new king who will be a man after God's own heart. And, and to help us to think about where we are in this in, in the overall story of that 1 Samuel is telling, imagine the, the, the story of Saul and David as a graph where each fall and rise. It starts with Saul's meteoric rise, right? He's way up here. He's, um, when he's at the height of his power, he rejects God and is rejected by God. And he starts falling. Right after that, David enters the story. Uh, you know, Sean preached last week about some of his rise, right? At the same time Saul is falling, David is rising. And... This text is about where they meet, the X of their intersection. Uh, these two chapters are about the conflict, the contrast between the two when their paths cross. That's why the title for today's sermon is Who Will Rule? It's, the, it's because the conflict and the contrast between David and Saul is, 
It's the contrast and the conflict that's at the heart of the Bible's message, the choice each of us faces when it comes to our own lives. Who will rule? Um, the question of who will rule, is, it's presented really well in a gospel presentation that we've used here at the church before called Two Ways to Live. Um, at the end of that presentation of the gospel, uh, you know, part of it is we say that there's only two ways to live in light of what we know about God, our sin, and Jesus. One, we can go our own way, we can reject God as ruler, live our own way as our own rulers, continuing in the disastrously damaging rebellion and face death and judgment. Or two, we can go God's new way, submit to Jesus, God's king, as our ruler, relying on Jesus' death and resurrection and thus be forgiven by God and receive a new life that lasts forever. So, rejection of God as king, living our own way, demanding we get to rule, rebelling against God, and facing death and judgment. Saul. Or, submitting to the king after God's own heart, relying on the humble servant king, forgiven by God, living in an eternal kingdom that lasts forever. David. Who will rule? Will we try to rule ourselves? Or will we submit to God's rule in Jesus? Those are the two choices. We'll see how Saul is the archetype, the pinnacle of a rebellious self-ruler who rejects God's rule and seeks to rule his own kingdom apart from God's authority. Us without Jesus, in other words. And then we'll contrast it with David, the archetype of the one who submits himself to God's righteous rule and thus takes his place as a son and heir of the king, who rules his own life and the world God has given him under the kingship of God. In other words, the way we can be with Jesus. And David is not only the archetype of that life that we can live, but he's a signpost pointing to the perfect king to come and the type of people that would be that king's people after he gives them his perfect life. So, God's ruler sets himself apart from the human self-ruler in three ways. And our first point to consider is, what the ruler fears. What the ruler fears. See, Saul cannot stand to be thought of as playing second fiddle to David. Uh, when the women of Israel start singing the praises of David in 18.7, Saul's jealous. Uh, this is because, you know, it has been made obvious in previous chapters, chapters in 1 Samuel, Saul really, really cares what people think about him. Uh, he's afraid of people early on, so he hides in the baggage when Samuel's announcing that he's the king. Um, he, you know, after he's king, when he starts losing his army before a big battle, uh, you know, uh, he fears the Philistines and what's going to happen, so he tries to keep the army around him and inspire confidence by offering sacrifices that he's not authorized to offer. It's a, you know, disobeying God's law to offer them. And, and then when Saul gives him a direct command, destroy Agag and everything in Amalek, he disobeys, and he does so at least partially because he's afraid of the people, and he obeyed their voice. He didn't listen to God's voice because of his external circumstances, the people and events around him over and over. Uh, we see several times in First Samuel he's afraid of the Philistines and of his fellow Israelites, and most of all, he's afraid of, terrified really, of David. Uh, because David appears to him to be the man Samuel told him about three chapters ago, Saul's neighbor, who is going to receive the kingdom that God is tearing out of Saul's hands. Now, he's right. 
Uh, but instead of embracing the man that God is choosing to rule after him, he's afraid of him. The threat that David represents to his power and to his reputation. He thinks he can fight against God, so he resists God's decrees. And he is filled with fear as he does so. David, David on the other hand, he does not appear in this passage or immediately before this to fear anything. He's not, he doesn't fear Goliath, not the Philistines, not Saul, not his fellow Israelites. So even while taking action to flee from Saul and preserve his life, it's never once stated that he acts out of fear, that he's afraid. It's, it's never even implied that he's afraid the same way Saul is afraid. Instead, he what we see is that he goes boldly out and he does the work that God and God's anointed king gave him to do. Uh, he fights the Philistine. He leads his men. He plays his lyre in the presence of the king despite the fact that the mentally unbalanced and unstable Saul tries to kill him not once, but twice. So, who the ruler fears is, is really important. Uh, way before this in Israel's history, uh, you know what we read in Deuteronomy, God through Moses anticipated the coming of a king and he told his people some things about what a king should and shouldn't do. The last thing in that list uh, for a king, you know, after the horses and the wives and the gold and silver, uh, it's to make a copy of God's law. Moses' words from God about how his people are to live. Approved by the priests and kept with him at all times. So just listen to the section again. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. Did you hear that at the end? That he may learn to fear the Lord his God. That's who the ruler's to fear, right? To know and understand that God, the mighty king of the universe, the maker and the judge of all, the perfect standard of righteousness, that God is the only one that he ought to fear. To know, to know that the displeasure of God the king is the only displeasure that will cause eternal harm. That dying in battle or having your people think you aren't a very good warrior or losing your kingdom, those things are nothing. Absolutely nothing compared to setting yourself in willful rebellion to the king of the universe by disobeying his will. Saul does not fear that. He does not fear setting himself in willful rebellion to the revealed will of the ruler of the universe. He fears everything else, but not God. Not being in rebellion to God. And David does. But, but not only that. See, David doesn't follow God's law just because he's afraid of bad consequences, but because he's a man after God's own heart. What God loves, he loves. God loves courage and truthfulness and steadfastness, and so we see in this passage that David loves those things too. Uh, David can do the hard things that God calls him to because if God is for him, who can be against him? He can serve in Saul's court without fear because he knows this is where God wants him for now. And he can fight against God's enemies, the Philistines, without fear because he knows that God's reputation, God's mighty name, and the good of God's people are safe and secure 
in the power of a God who never grows weary and is jealous for the glory of his perfect name. David and Saul. But as much as Saul is held up as a king who fails to fear God and follows commands, and as much as David is held up, I say Saul's held up as a fail, fail, okay, and David's held up as a king who fears God and excels at following his commands out of a heart that loves God and his commands, David does end up failing. Not here, not this text in 18 and 19, but before too long. Uh, he's, he will fear, fear man, and he, uh, not God, and uh, he'll distrust and disobey God because of that. And he will deserve God's righteous judgment for his sin. And so we're left wondering, just as the original readers of this would have when they've read all of David's story, is there any hope? If even this man, this king after God's own heart, this true king who replaces the false king Saul, if he ends up fearing something besides God? The answer is yes. Yes, there is hope. Because as God promises a little bit later, David will have an heir, a great, 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 great grandson. And that son, the truer, true king, will always live out of, a, out of a perfect fear of God. He will never fear man or what man can do to him. He will never once give in to the nagging desire to modify his behavior, to fit in a little bit better because he's worried about what other people will think about him or how they'll treat him. He'll never once get jealous or mad because someone gets the glory he wants. And he'll never once flee from a battle he needs to fight from a hardship that he knows he's called to. And who is that son? It's Jesus. And not only does that perfect son, that perfect son of David, live out a perfect life demonstrating what it means to fear the Lord his God, but he creates a people who have who never have to fear anything in this world again because his work was the work of taking rebels who should fear, right? We should feel such fear at the judgment we deserve and turns us from those rebels into sons, sons who know their all-powerful father is working on our behalf every day in every way. See, the perfect son creates sons and daughters who no longer fear and someday will experience the perfect love and there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So what do you and I fear? Are we like Saul in that we fear what other people think of us? So we're constantly acting out of fear to please others, even if it means I act in ways that show I don't fear God. I don't care what he thinks nearly as much as I care what those around me think. Do I end up cultivating a carefully curated online presence that presents me like a shiny, happy person while avoiding being in the open and vulnerable Christian relationships that cultivate godliness? Do we fear the pain of loss through illness or pain through financial hardship or some other pain? Do I seek to alleviate the fear of those pains through overworking, drugs, alcohol, video games? Maybe I just avoid that pain or the fear of that pain by running from a cross that Jesus is calling me to carry. Maybe I fear being seen as wrong. I fear being seen as fallible, so I never take any steps forward in faith, afraid to fail. 
Now, there, there is a lot to fear. There's no denying that in the world that we live in. This world is full of danger and pain and hardship. But David points to the perfect son of David, the perfect Jesus who lived a perfect life of perfect love and trust that never once gave into the siren song of fear that calls us to shipwreck our faith, our faith in our God's goodness on the rocks of disbelief. Because of that, we can live in hope and trust and faith, not fear, that our good God is working good for us and he will someday bring us to a place where there's never anything more to fear ever again. So what the ruler fears was our first question. The second thing to look at is who the ruler loves. Who the ruler loves. Now Saul is a ruler. He doesn't, doesn't appear to care about anyone in this passage but himself. Uh, not his daughters, who he uses in political pawns, uses political pawns in marriages. Not his people, the Israelites, who's good through the work of David, he doesn't seem to give a rip about. Uh, not Jonathan, who persuades in this passage, he persuades Saul to take David back. Uh, but Saul, Saul's eventually going to try to kill him in a fit of rage. Uh, Saul, instead of love, is consumed by selfishness that turns to active hatred along with his fear. See, Saul especially hates David, who he takes to, takes to further his own prestige. He ends up wanting him dead. Because David threatens all that Saul holds dear. He threatens Saul's standing among the people. He threatens Saul's rule as the king. Saul's joy is wrapped up in those things. And so when something or someone threatens those things, he's angry and he hates that threat. So of all the people that Saul rejects and hates, he hates David most. David, God's anointed. David the ruler appointed by God to execute his righteous rule among God's people. David, God's representative, the king after God's own heart. Saul clearly loves no one but himself, but David is the focus of Saul's anger and hatred and rage. But David, David's another story. It's abundantly clear you know, just look at the first couple of verses. He loves Jonathan, that he's united to this man who shares his faith and trust in the God of Israel and who engages in the work of spreading the glory of Yahweh. David loves the people of God and he risks his life engaging in the work of protecting and defending the Israelites, God's people. Uh, David loves Michal, even though he has to risk much to gain the benefit of being married to her. Uh, David's love is wide and deep. And it's centered on God's people. Uh, you see, Saul is only capable of loving himself because the only way that Saul can relate to the people around him here is by using them as means to an end, uh, not as ends in themselves. What, what I mean by that is that Saul, uh, because of what Saul loves, his reputation, his power, he can only love people as they get him those things. He can only love people who work to further his reputation. He can only love people as they further and solidify his power as the king. So despite David doing so much good for the Israelites, Saul couldn't care less because it's the, at the expense of his reputation. Uh, despite Michal being his daughter, he should love her. Uh, the only thing Saul can obsess about is how she's undermining his power by supporting David, her husband. 
and David. David is capable of loving people in a different way because he is secure in the love of God. He can risk his life in battle for his people because he knows this is what God has called him to and pleasing God is what pleases him. He loves Jonathan not because of what Jonathan, anything Jonathan can do for him. In fact, it's the opposite uh, because Jonathan represents a possible threat to, his king, to David's earthly kingdom, right? The heir of the current king. But rather, he loves Jonathan because Jonathan is his brother, not in blood, but in having their great God as their shared father. Uh, David, David even loves Saul. Do you see that in this passage? In the way that David seeks to serve God's currently appointed king, Saul, humbly. In the way he ministers out of love with his lyre to soothe this tormented soul of a man who wants him dead. In the way that David can absolutely demolish hordes of Philistines, right? He's, he's, these, these are warriors and he is, he, you know, he never loses. But he never once turns his sword against the man who is an active threat to his life. He loves Saul by never once exercising his right to self-defense against Saul. But instead, he humbly lays down his life to serve him. David can love others, even his enemy, because he is secure in the love of God. And he doesn't only love others because of what they can do for him, but because of what God has done for him. He lives out of love that delights in doing good for others, not because of anything they can do for him, but because it's what God calls him to, and he loves living out a faithful obedience to God to pour out his life in service to others. It's quite a picture of love. And yet, David would fail here too. His love turns to lust for Bathsheba, and he adulterously takes her and then murders her husband. His love for various of his sons becomes so all-consuming, so inordinate, that he fails to do what's right and loving and just. So while David gives us an amazing example of a man who can love people the way God calls us to, there's no ultimate hope in David for God's people because he too would fail to love people except as a means to serve his own happiness. And thus he ends up deserving God's just judgment. So is there any hope of a king who would love his people? Love them perfectly, never as a means to other ends, but merely because he chooses to love them. Yes, yes there is hope. Because David's greater son, the promised heir, he would love people in a way that had never been seen before. That promised heir, Jesus, the incarnate second person of the Trinity, God the Son, secure in the perfect love of the Trinity that needed no one and no one else, perfectly happy from before time began into all eternity, that king would give up all the joys of heaven, become a weak and frail human, and engage in the greatest act of love that has ever been seen, the act of taking the punishment, the death that justly belongs to human rebels, taking it on himself, and then turning those rebels and haters of God into God's very own children, his new people with new hearts. Jesus lived a whole life of loving people that didn't deserve it, and he loved them in a way 
that they would never earn. And he still loves us, his people, in ways that surpass knowledge, cannot be fathomed. So, how will you love people? How will I love people? Will I love my kids when they behave, when they feed my desire to be comfortable and respected and well thought of, but get angry and resent them when they threaten those things? Will I love my friends when we get to pretend that we're all good spiritual people together, but you know, put some space, some distance between us when I think that maybe they're getting a suspicion that I'm actually a sinner, and not just a polite spiritual sinner, but a real sinner, selfish and fearful and angry, and show my helplessness and that I need their help to fight my sin. How about you kiddos here today? Will you love your siblings, your friends, when they're playing nice with you, doing what you want, but stop when they're selfish and mean? Will you demand your way or give up your way because you love them, secure in Jesus' love for you? Or, this is harder, how about your enemies? Will you love? How will you and I love them? Will we only love them when they're being nice to us and doing the right thing, being polite on social media or in print or at work? Or when they turn on me and oppose me, try to murder my reputation or promote lies or harm me, will I respond in love? Will you and I do good for them? Will we sacrifice for them? Will we lash out and attempt to score truth points, seeking to demolish their reputation and standing in others' eyes so that we will be seen to be right? Will we love them? What the ruler fears was our first point. Who the ruler loves is our second. And finally, the result of their reign. It's the third thing that distinguishes the God's ruler from the human self-ruler is the result of their reign. So do you remember what I mentioned earlier, the gospel presentation, Two Ways to Live? Um, I used the phrase from that, disastrous, damaging rebellion, to describe who we are in our natural state in sin. Uh, two Ways to, to Live, they, they sum it up like the, sums it up like this. We reject God as our ruler by running our own lives our own way, and by rebelling against God's way, we damage ourselves, each other, and the world. We're like out-of-control cars slamming into other cars and buildings. That's a pretty good summation of what's going on with Saul, isn't it? Uh, he damages himself by giving in to the impulses of his mental instability. Uh, he damages his relationship with his children, Michal and Jonathan, by trying to murder their husband and closest friend. He damages the part of the world that God has given him to rule when his stubborn rebellion costs Israel a massive military defeat and his own life. Saul's rebellion, his refusal to fear and submit to God as king, and his demand to rule the world his own way receives its just reward. His rule turns into a disaster, and he gets everything he deserves from God's hand for the way he chooses to try to rule as a little God instead of in submission to the one true God. See, in this text, he craves men's approval, and instead, He's humiliated by his daughter, replaced in the esteem of his people, and at the end of this passage, humiliated by God, as God uses him to prophesy naked, destroying his dignity. 
He craves the power to rule his kingdom, but instead, he's powerless to spear David, powerless before the cunning of his daughter, and powerless to even keep his clothes on as God causes him to prophesy. And that last one, that last one's important. Saul seeks power to rule his kingdom, but it's not his kingdom, and it never was. It's God's kingdom. It's all God's kingdom. It's his world. Uh, He says what happens. Uh, He even uses Saul to say what happens by causing him to prophesy, Uh, just like one of Saul's servants who Saul sent. You see, whether it's Saul's servants or Saul himself, both are servants to the one true king, God. Uh, The rebellious king is made to prophesy, to say, thus saith the Lord, in testament to the fact that there is no king but God the king. Saul and Saul's rule will be used by God, but because he's a rebel to God's will, he will kick and fight and scream and hate and fear the whole way down to destruction. Then there's David. He knows God is the sovereign ruler of all things. God has said he's going to make David king over his people. So David can go into battle secure knowing that God is with him and will work through him. Uh, And God does. He uses David in new and amazing ways to rescue God's people. Uh, Also, God has said Saul is the king for now. So David can serve him humbly knowing that nothing will come to David from Saul except through God's hands. And God protects David, doesn't he? Sometimes by mundane means, such as the morally ambiguous lies of his wife, and sometimes through miraculous means, by causing Saul to, in his messengers to prophesy. See, God works through David to cause his rule to be good for his people. David's trust in God and God's word leads to the preservation of God's people from their enemies, the glorification of the king after God's own heart, and ultimately God's own glory, as even those who rebel against him in this passage, Saul and his servants, are brought under his righteous judgment and made to serve his will and his glory. But again, while this passage shows the amazing effects of the ruler who submits his ruler to the rule of God, the king, King David fails to rule the way he should, and the consequences are horrific. His sin with Bathsheba ends up leading to the death of his infant son, civil war, the death of many Israelites. Out of a desire to know exactly how powerful his military is, he takes a census, you know, forgetting that God, or choosing to ignore the fact that God gives victory or defeat, not the size of the army, and the punishment for God for that is a, is a plague that devastates Israel. Uh, when we read all of David's story, we're left wondering, is there any hope that there will be a king whose reign never leads to the unhappiness or harm of his people? A king whose reign results in the permanent, total, and eternal salvation of that king's people. And yes, yes, there is hope. The root of Jesse, David's descendant, Jesus, was even then God's plan for giving his people a king who would never fail to rule himself for the world around him. And in that rule, bring the greatest joy and the greatest peace and the greatest hope that humanity had ever known. You see, by never failing to rule his life in the way that God's commands, by never failing to submit to his father, even to the point of death, 
Jesus earned a future for his people where he is their king and he will love them and protect them and give them the thing that will make them happiest forever, himself. Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And if we go back to verse 3 of that same chapter in Romans, we can see what the effect that has on us. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, because of the amazing work of Jesus, we can count on God to continue the amazing work of freeing us from sin's rule. We're free from a life of only ever rebelling against God's rule. Free from a life of only ever damaging ourselves and others and the world around us. Free from the just judgment that comes to rebels. Because of what Jesus has done, because of his spirit he sends to live in us, we are free to live the way that God the King calls us. Our stubborn, rebellious hearts can, are changed into hearts that love God, love his law, love his character reflected in his commandments, and love to live out of that love towards others. So please, consider with me today, who is ruling your life? Do you still cling to the illusion that you rule your own life, like Saul does in this passage? You will be disillusioned someday, uh, either when God works in your heart and convinces you that he is a good king, worthy of loving and serving and living for, or when he casts you away from himself into eternal darkness. Or consider, does your life reflect the rule of God the king? Does it? Do you seek to submit to him because he's your father and it brings you joy, great joy to live in a way that pleases your father? Do you flee from the sin that still lingers in your life? Fight it as the tumor that it is? No longer a part of who you are but a clinging sickness from a different life that hangs on, no longer has power over you? Whatever your stance on God's rule, please understand that Jesus is bringing God's perfect rule in ways that David and the Israelites at the time can only dream about. Will you stand on the side of Saul, clinging to your own rule and reputation until God humbles you and shows you that he alone is king of the whole universe? Will you stand on the side of God and his chosen king, King Jesus, safe and secure, knowing that he is working for your good for now and for all eternity, and that no one, no one and nothing can interfere with his power. I invite you this day, make King Jesus the king of your life, the ruler who has said, come to me all who, are la who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, God's ruler sets himself apart from a human ruler by what the ruler fears, who the ruler loves, and the result of their reign in our lives and over all creation and into eternity. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we know you are the king of the universe, Lord, but we still struggle. We 
think we know better and in our pride we resist your reign. Lord, we are um, humbly throwing ourselves on your mercy and your grace and we, uh, we trust that you are the good king and that Christ's rule in our life is for our good. Lord, we pray that we would look to this Jesus who has died on the cross, suffering the penalty that rebels deserve on our behalf and we would cling to him that we would love him, that we would follow after him, that we would pick up our cross joyously knowing that following this king is the path to eternal happiness, eternal glory. Lord, I pray that you would do this work in us through your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen.